In chapter 7, we started last week with Stephen's defense of his faith. He was accused in chapter 6, verse 13, and 11 and 13. 11, he was accused of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And in the formal charge in verse 13 was he spoke against the temple and the law. Those were serious things. And so he began his defense. And he began his defense last week, we saw, by doing what was common in the New Testament. I don't know if you know this. It's, I'm in an interesting place right now because I'm teaching in Acts. I'm teaching the book of Hebrews. And I'm teaching the book of Galatians uh, in two different connect groups. And they're all kind of dealing with the same thing at this point where I'm teaching them. And that is, does Christianity need to be Jewish in nature, in, in, in a broad sense? And the reliance upon the law. And what all of them do is they all, you see this in the New Testament. It's some, you know, I don't care how old I get. Well, I do care how old I get. I don't want to get that old. You know, but some of you know what I'm talking about. Too bad, too late for y'all. But there's hope for me, I think. But anyways, um, you, you, I, I don't care how old I get. I'm always learning new things. And I'm seeing things conceptually that I don't always see. And I'm always amazed when I see those. And one of the things I'm really seeing conceptually and realizing is that how often the New Testament, when the, it, the battle is about the Old Testament law, you know, Moses, that they continually go past him to Abraham and say, there was no law with Abraham. There was just faith. Before there was circumcision, before there was law, before there was anything, Abraham trusted God. And God credited that to him as righteousness. And God made a promise to Abraham before Abraham even really ever truly believed or followed God. God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless the whole world through him. And we understand that that is through the seed and that is ultimately through the Messiah. And that promise supersedes the law. It takes precedence over the law. It's not the law that brings us to God. The promise is the key. And they keep going back past Moses to Abraham and say, that's what Jesus does. He fulfills everything about Abraham. Now, he fulfills the law too. And it's amazing to see that. And Stephen's doing this. And we're going to see this more in just a minute. And um, one of the things that you begin to realize in doing that is to get past the religious systems that we put in place, and we do it too as Baptists. We have so many systems in place, and get to the essence of the promise of God for a people who have faith. And so Stephen begins to do this, and this begins to happen. And you begin to realize that in the Old Testament, and I say this all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I say this as much as I say anything. I say all the time I say things like honor God, give people to Jesus, and I say this. The Old Testament promises something, the New Testament fulfills it. And that's exactly what happens. You go to Abraham. And here's the fascinating thing. I was doing some reading today and getting ready for Christmas. And it, just, and it hit me, something I already knew, but it hit me, that in the rabbis in the day of Jesus, they all looked for a Messiah to fulfill all of the promise of the Old Testament. They understood their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, is having hundreds of of places that it pointed to the Messiah. Now, when you see the New Testament, you know, they talk about some that Jesus fulfilled. A lot of the things that the list of things that they thought applied to the, to the Messiah, we would say, well, that's kind of a stretch. But, they, but that's how they thought. They were always looking for the Messiah. I hear people today talk about, well, you know, God's promises to the Jews, you know, and Jesus' coming was kind of parenthetical, and, and you know, we're going to have to reestablish, I mean, especially now with all that's going on in the Middle East, it's going to reestablish the kingdom, you know, the Israel and all the temple and all that. They didn't think that way. Now, they, they thought the temple, yes, they thought that everything would culminate in the Messiah. They missed the Messiah. It's Jesus. And, and, 
That is the promise of God in the old, that it's pointing to Jesus. And so what you see these guys doing, the author of Hebrews, Paul in Galatians, here's Stephen, and Luke quotes Stephen, they're pointing to that. And they're taking what they believed in the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, said, that, that Jesus is that guy. And you've got to believe him. And interesting enough, the vast majority of things Stephen, Stephen said, they would all agree with. It was a couple of things that they didn't agree with that's going to get him killed. That's kind of the way it is in the battle. So I'm going to pick back up where we left off in verse 17, I believe. Having talked about Abraham and the patriarchs, and he reminds them that in the patriarchs, the brothers of Joseph tried to kill him. They sold him into slavery, all right? So he's reminding them they've always been against the prophetic word. So having said that, verse 17, at the same time, they're in, they're in Egypt. At the time of the promise was approaching, which God has assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. In other words, he made a promise to Abraham. Abraham hadn't realized it. But as that promise became closer and closer, now here he's going to talk about the promise of the promised land, of, of that part of the promise. Because part of the promise that God made to Abraham would be there would be a home that would be there. It's the promised land. You know? and, and so that's part of the deal. So you have to understand the big picture. As that day knew, grew closer, they were in Egypt, and they began to really grow and increase. And, and the numbers of while they were in Egypt grew. And, and uh, I'm doing, and I'm preaching a lot um, in, in the summer. I'm doing two months on, I'm doing the summer series on the uh, first part of Exodus up through chapter 13. And then the deep fry that I do in July is the chapter 13, which is the, pa uh, the Passover and all that. The, the slaughter of the, of the firstborn die, the Passover and the Ten Commandments. And so, you know, all the work I'm doing of that, and I'm reading that parallel. It's amazing how God has me reading things that coincide and reinforce each other. They were in Egypt so they could grow. And he realized when, the, when Moses is coming up to Pharaoh saying, letting my people go, those slaves, Pharaoh sees a massive army leaving his people, not just slaves, but the organization of an army of hundreds of thousands of people who could eventually go to war with him. That's part of the struggle he has going on. They increased, they multiplied, they grew. Until verse 18 says, there was another king, and he's quoting from Exodus, an Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. That's the key in the book of Egypt. There was a king who didn't know who Joseph. Joseph did that great stuff. They didn't know it. It was he who took advantage, should advantage over our race. He mistreated our fathers. They would expose their infants and they would not survive. They were killing the Moses and the babies. It was at this time that Moses was born. He was born now. And he was lovely in the sight of God. That means there's, there's something about him that stood out. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And then after he'd been set aside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and deeds. Moses was placed by God at the right place at the right time. Notice, you also understand that in the New Testament, Moses is a type of forerunner to Jesus. In other words, as Jesus would deliver all people, Moses would deliver the Egyptians. He was, he was, 
His life was at risk early on by a king, just like Jesus' life was at risk early on by a king. Just like Jesus would one day be in Egypt and come out, Moses was in Egypt. And before the Israelites ever left, Moses would leave before them. I mean, so you see these similarities. What he's talking about, though, is that God was working to deliver his promise of the Messiah all the way back in time of Moses. And by the way, they all agreed with that. Nobody was going to disagree with Stephen on any of that. They're like, yeah, they get some amens. They say, you're right. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't have any problem with that so far. God is constantly working. But verse 23, when he was approaching the age of 40, he entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance on the oppressor by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, are you brethren? Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So what Stephen does and what they understood, they saw, if you read the Exodus, it doesn't appear that Moses had a concept of him delivering his people. But they're indicating that Moses had at least an idea that he, in his position in Egypt, could help his people. So he defended them against the Egyptian and slew the Egyptian thinking they would be, and they thought they'd be grateful, but they weren't, which would be a pattern. And so now for the first time, Stephen begins to say, hey, listen, remember Moses, who was the deliverer of our people, before you even have the whole Exodus thing, and you know, and the, and, and the parting of the Red Sea and all that, they were already rejecting him. The concept of rejection already existed in the prototype to the Christ, to the Messiah, was already rejected by the very people he came to save. It's a foreshadowing. It's a pointing to. It is a promise kind of to look at. You don't want to overanalyze it. You don't want to try to make too many details. People do this all the time. But it's clearly pointing to his similarities. Oh, yeah, I see that. Just as Jesus was rejected by his people, Moses was continually. So he points that out. He left. He went to the land of the Midianites. He got married. Had a couple of kids. Spent 40 years there. Life was going good. Theoretically. Verse 30, 40 years passed. And an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. So you had the burning bush. Notice, Stephen says it was an angel. He's quoting from, I think, the Septuagint or some, one of the other texts uh, that was used to translate the uh, Hebrew and Exodus. Now, he's saying, it's interesting because when we think of the, the burning bush, we just think of God. And, it's, and it is God. He's going to talk about that. The Hebrew people, both in Old and New, Testament interchanged the concept of the angel of the Lord or the servant of the Lord in God back and forth. Now, the word angel in both Hebrew and Greek means messenger, the one who speaks on behalf of God. So it is not inappropriate to speak of God in terms of in burning bush as the angel of the Lord. Or when he's dealing with Abraham earlier in, in Genesis, Obviously, there was a man that was there. That's what Abraham sees. But, but when he's dealing with him about whether or not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he comes across as speaking to the Lord, to God. 
And so there was just kind of understanding of how it, it, it's, it's, it's a fluid thing that shouldn't bug us. Don't get hung up on that. They weren't hung up on it. It's not hung up on saying it was the angel of the Lord and the Lord himself too. The way that God chose to reveal himself, it's always God. Now, I want to make this very clear because this comes up sometimes. That you see these things in the Old Testament. Some people think that there are times that Jesus appears in the Old Testament. I absolutely, completely reject that. Categorically reject that. That that is never an issue. That there is never a time that the second person of the Trinity appears in the Old Testament. And I say that because it's important to understand our, underst our understanding of Jesus is that when he became flesh, it was unique. It was unique. It was something that had never happened before. He was completely God, completely man, and he took the form of himself, Jesus. And I, and I say by extension, if, if that's unique, then how can he show up before that in the form of humanity. These are not pagan gods. This is not mythology where the pagan gods could appear as humans. The ones who appear to them as humans were angels of the Lord. That happened. We know that happened. New Testament, Gabriel shows up. What's he say every time he shows up? Don't be afraid. I said, it's Christmas time. We're going to see that a lot. Don't be afraid. Have this calling card. So understand don't try to spiritualize things and, and take Jesus and make him, you know, everywhere in the Old Testament. Let, let things speak the way they speak and let it understand it. The angel of the Lord was God working, and they used that interchangeably. This is the Lord God Almighty in the bush. Absolutely. The fact that they categorized it to some degree as his messenger is not an issue. Don't make it an issue. It's okay. Notice what the angel said. Moses saw it. He marveled at, at the night. He approached. Remember, he said this was an angel appeared. And what did the angel say? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear, would not venture to look. And so what happens is I am, I am the God of your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, I am the God who exists. I am Yahweh. They would all agree with that. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. That's important. Now remember, they accused Stephen of speaking against the temple. Because that's where God dwelt. And Stephen is saying, you remember Moses before he gave the law? And he appeared and God appeared to him in a bush and said, wherever I am, that's holy ground. So important. The Jews took the tabernacle and then later the temple and confined God to that place. And the irony is that when Jesus was walking around, he was God in the flesh. And everywhere he went, there was God. Oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit indwells within us. And everywhere we go, in a sense, not because of us, God is always present. God is never confined to a building. I've always hated the term sanctuary. You never hear me call this place a sanctuary. I've never used that term. Because there's nothing sanctified about it. It's not the place where God is. God is wherever God wants to be. Now, I believe that when we worship on Sunday mornings 
And, you know, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is there because we're there. And whether we're worshiping through song and most certainly and more likely when I preach. <laughs> sorry, sorry, guys, back there. Just going to get that dig in a little bit. Theoretically, anyways, you know, there's God. Now, listen, you know, when, when you're sitting next to your neighbor and they're hurting and you're there to comfort them, you know who's there? God. God's always there. Not in the pantheistic way that all the created world contains God. He's not in the trees. He's not in your animals. He's not, you know. But, I mean, God is present because this is his world and he owns it. And he is Lord of everything. Now, I say God is Lord of everything. That's holy ground. He said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groans. I've come down to rescue them. Got to fly down. Then Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent. God sent him to be a ruler and, get this, a deliverer of the people with the help of an angel from a thorn bush. There again, he calls an angel there. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother. God will raise one up. Like me. So he's talking ultimately about Christ. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel. who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. Who was with our fathers. And received the living oracles to pass to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. But repudiated him in their hearts. And turned back to Egypt. Remember. Repeatedly they said I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to Egypt. They rejected Moses. This nothing new. To reject the one who delivers you. They do it all the time. Saying to Aaron, make us gods who, you know, who will go before us to Moses to let us out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. Make us gods. How do you make a god? How dumb is that? And yet we have a whole culture who makes up gods all the time. They made a calf and brought it sacrifice to the idol. They were rejoicing in the works of the hands. Get that, Jake. They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Paganism is always us creating our own gods and goddesses. Every, every existence of any religious system in place that is not of faith, it's not Christianity, is people having created their own religion. And they rejoice in it time and time again. It is ultimately the glorification of humanity. Verse 44, I'm going to skip down a little bit. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. They received it in their turn. Our fathers brought it in with Joshua. This is the tabernacle upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out. Until the time of David, David found favor in the sight of God, asked he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built it. We always talk about Solomon's temple, but really it was David's temple in the sense it came from David's mind. And look what he says in verse 8. However, the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my uh, repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So he's saying, 
just as the Israelites made pagan gods and they went and worshipped them, if you think that building a temple is the only place where God exists, you're guilty of that also because the prophets say, in quoting God, he, can, he, he rules everything. So why are you saying that I'm speaking against the law when the law is, is secondary to faith? And we have, our people have always rejected Moses. Why are you accusing me of something our forefathers did? And why are you saying that I speak against the temple when the temple is not the place that contains God? That's what he's laying out. He's laying out that argument. Verse 51, this is what gets him killed. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. They were circumcised physically, but not in heart. And ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, that is the Messiah, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You, who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. And he turned everything around on them. and said, it is not I who is on defense, it is you. It's not I who rejected Moses. I have received Jesus, you know, the one that was everything was promised to. You have not kept Moses because you rejected the one who talked about the coming of Christ. And you say, I have spoken against the temple, yet the one who is God in the flesh, who is to be worshipped, you have rejected. You did this, not me, but it's nothing new. Because you, through your forefathers in the religious world, have always persecuted the prophets. And to them, the Messiah was a prophet. He said, you're the one who's killed them all. And you killed Jesus. And I am not the one at fault. You are. It's pretty bold talk. But in this, he lays out some things for us that are critical to our understanding. We are the true, as followers of Jesus, not Jew, not Gentile. We can say the church has finer Christians, but I would just rather say this. The follower of Gentile, the follower of Jesus, is the true child of Abraham. Because we have kept the promise. We have believed in the Messiah. We are also the true child of Moses, who looked and saw one who would come to fulfill all that God had promised. We, are, we, as followers of Jesus, are the true people of God. That's what is taught in the New Testament. Paul taught it. Luke's teaching it here. Hebrews teaches it explicitly. And oh, by the way, a guy named Jesus taught it. He says, I can raise up children of Abraham from rocks. And we need to understand that what the Old Testament does is builds this momentum up to Jesus, and Jesus fulfills it. And we follow Jesus, and we believe and trust in Jesus, because that was the promise God had made. And we live our life following him. We live our life trusting him. And one of the things that we cannot do as Christians is do what the Jews did and build these systems in place requiring people to believe certain things or do certain things or you're not a follower of Jesus. Now, I get it. There are certain doctrines we have to believe, yes. 
Is there certain moral things we need to do? Absolutely. But we do it because we are followers of Christ. Not in order to become a follower of Christ. So what he said, you're not obedient to Moses. Your fathers weren't obedient to Moses. You keep all the law, but you're not obedient. Why? Because you don't keep the promise. You don't have faith. And what we've got to understand, what we've got to do is help people understand and get to the place where they trust Jesus. Absolutely, there are certain things, once you trust Jesus, you need to do. I get it. I'm not saying that. But you do it as the result of a changed disposition in your life. You don't do it in order to be acceptable by God, which is exactly what was being taught by the Jews here. It was what was taught by the people who were thinking about leaving Christianity to go back to Judaism and Hebrews, and it was taught by the Judaizers and Galatians. And it has been taught by people in the church for 2,000 years. I've seen it so many times. Do this, and you can be saved. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick. That means they were ticked. And you could use some other descriptions if you want. And they began gnashing their teeth. I've never seen anybody gnash their teeth. I think people have done it towards me, but I hadn't seen it. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. This is what really irritated him. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. He was not seated. He was standing at the right hand of God. Jesus, and some say he was standing to receive Stephen as a martyr. Ah, maybe. That sounds good. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried in a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. They drove him out of the city. They began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning Stephen as he called out to the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now, it was illegal for them to carry out the death penalty. We know that, because just recently they had done it with Jesus, but the feeling was this was not a formal sentence like Christ had, but it was a mob killing, and the Romans probably turned away from it. Stephen said some remarkable things, but ever so subtly listening in there, there was this dude named Saul. He saw all of this. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen. And they cried over him. And Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison. I'll comment this on this next time, but I want you to see the result of this was two things. The church then began to leave Jerusalem. And all those people from different parts of the world who were there began to leave. They began to fulfill Acts 1 8. You know, by the way, in the midst of all this, there would be this guy who would be the man who would begin to take the gospel to the Gentiles above everyone else. But before that, he went from home to home and drug women and men out of their homes to put them to prison and quite possibly to death. 
And this is what the church stood. And now everything changes. Everything about Christianity changes. And ultimately, in persecution, it all changed for the better.